Yeah, I want to echo Pastor Shan- what Pastor Shannon said. Thank you for those songs. Those were beautiful, and what a joy to worship the Lord together. And um, I look forward to, again, doing that this Wednesday, just singing about Christ and, and His coming. Well, let's uh, open up God's Word together. Matthew chapter 16. Beginning in verse 21 is our text today. Matthew 16, 21. If you're using the, the black Bibles that are provided, they can be found on page 822. Last week, uh, we saw in our study through Matthew uh, a real benchmark for the disciples, and really it was a, it's a turning point in Matthew's gospel as a whole. If you remember last week in in the passage right before this, Peter, uh, who really was speaking for um, the 12 disciples, he confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the living God, he said. By God's grace, the disciples at this point had recognized and believed that Jesus is the promised King sent from God, that he is the Messiah, and they had come to understand that Jesus was no mere man, but that he was truly the divine son of God. And so now that that has happened, now that the disciples believe that Jesus is the Messiah, now they need to understand why he has come, what his mission is as the Messiah. And so for the first time, really, in Matthew's gospel, there's been hints of it before, certainly, but now, for the first time, explicitly, Jesus is going to tell them about his upcoming suffering and death. And that's where our text uh, begins today then. So please uh, follow along with me as I read, and I'd ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 16, 21 through 28. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. The title of the sermon this morning is Consider the Cost. I know this is a time of year when there's a lot of shopping that's taking place, probably a lot of price checking and cost consideration, but all all 
all joking aside, this is the most important thing you can, the most important cost you could consider today is what we're going to be talking about from the text. And so I pray that God will help us by his spirit really understand God's word and really consider the costs that are being talked about today. And there's two parts to the sermon which make up the two paragraphs in the text we're looking at. Part one I entitled The Cost of Salvation, and part two is The Cost of Following Christ. So let us first consider from verses 21 through 23, The Cost of Salvation. Loved ones, our salvation is a free gift of God's grace to us. It's a free gift of God's grace to us, but it cost our Lord Jesus dearly. Verse 21 begins, from that time, meaning now that the disciples recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, again, Jesus needs to show them what he has come to do. So from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, the disciples expected Jesus to go to Jerusalem. They figured he would go there to conquer the Romans and reestablish the the physical kingdom of Israel. After all, the scriptures spoke of the Messiah delivering his people and ruling over them in righteousness. But they don't yet understand that Jesus had not come to rescue them from Roman occupation, but rather he was going to deliver his people from their greater enemy of sin, death, and Satan. And in order to do this, in order to rescue his people, Jesus would have to suffer and die on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. So Christ's mission to Jerusalem, he's saying, yes, we must go or I must go to Jerusalem. But that mission was not going to involve political glory, but rather rejection and suffering. And notice, it's not like this... This suffering, this death that Jesus would experience was going to come at the hands of some radicals on the fringes of society, you know, some zealot, you know, that just, no. Jesus says his suffering and death will come from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. These are the established Jewish religious leaders of the day. Again, as we think about that, it's like the very people who should be at the front of the line welcoming Jesus Welcoming the Messiah, saying, yes, we've waited so long for you. Praise God that you're here. The very people who should be leading that that reverence and, and worship instead would be the ones leading the rejection and stirring up the rejection of Jesus. Please note in your Bibles, verse 21 says, uh, Jesus says that he must suffer and die in Jerusalem at the hands of these leaders. That word must is very important. We see it in the the Gospels. It speaks of divine necessity. In other words, behind even that small word must that we, we might just read over quickly, behind that word is the truth that this is God's ordained plan for Jesus. This has to happen. Before the foundation of the world, God has planned to send his only son to earth to die as as a sacrifice for sin, to be that spotless sacrifice, to live a, a sinless life. 
but yet to die in the place of sinners, to take their sin upon himself so that through his life, his death, and his resurrection, he would purchase their salvation. He would satisfy the wrath that his people deserved. This has been God's plan, that Jesus would do this, and and by doing it, that he would secure the salvation of all who would put their trust in him. And that he would die and then be raised and be enthroned as, as king and judge and savior and lord. This was God's plan. And it must take place. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples for this. He's, he's teaching them what, what's, what the mission is here. Where this is headed, right? They've been, they've been um, ministering in, in Galilee primarily. He's had this itinerant ministry but now things are shifting. Now the focus is going to be directed toward Jerusalem. And so he's preparing his disciples for this. And, and you know, you think about that. That was very kind of Jesus so that when this happens, they should not be surprised. They shouldn't think, oh, no, the mission has failed. The things have gone off the rails. No, this is the mission. This is the plan. He must go to Jerusalem to suffer and die and be raised, right? So Jesus tells them of his upcoming suffering and death and his subsequent resurrection from the dead on the third day. He includes that, but I don't think they heard that, and I know Peter didn't, right? I don't think Peter heard much after the suffer many things and be killed part because look at uh, his response in verse 22. We see Peter react very strongly to what Jesus has just said. And Peter took him aside, verse 22 and I mean, it's surprising, isn't it? And began to rebuke him. Rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. God forbid. This shall never happen to you. Again, the disciples, they, they would have never dreamed of the Messiah suffering and dying. The Jews expected the Messiah to conquer and rule. But here Jesus was saying, instead he would suffer, be rejected, and die. So Peter, in his mind, he's thinking, surely Jesus is mistaken about this. So Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. I can just imagine Peter saying something like, Jesus, what is up with this talk of, of suffering and dying and rejection? You need to knock that off. I don't know where you got those crazy ideas. The Messiah is not supposed to die. We are, we are so excited and thankful that you've come. We've been waiting for you. And, but if you're going to be the one who's going to lead us into, into glory, then you, you can't be talking this way. The suffering and death, Peter says, shall never happen to you. Far be it. God forbid it. Look at what Jesus, how Jesus responds in verse 23, though. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, even stronger rebuke coming, isn't there? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus calls Peter Satan. And rebukes Peter the same way he rebuked Satan in Matthew chapter 4. You remember that? Matthew chapter 4, before Jesus, right after his baptism, really before he begins his public ministry, the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness. 
where he's tempted continuously by Satan for 40, 40 days. And we see just kind of like the synopsis of that as Jesus um, resists those temptations and, and rebukes Satan in, in Matthew 4.10, saying, Be gone, Satan. And now here he's rebuking Peter with the same kind of language. Get behind me, Satan. Think back to Matthew chapter 4. Think back to those temptations that Satan was, was throwing on Jesus. What was Satan trying to get Jesus to do? You remember? I mean, I, I, mean, I know he was saying, oh, turn this into bread and, and that. But I mean, ultimately, what was Satan trying to get Jesus to do? Ultimately, he was trying to get Jesus to abandon God's plan of dying on the cross. He was trying to get Jesus to pursue glory, pursue comfort without the rejection, without the suffering. He was promising Jesus' uh, kingdom without the cross, right? If you'll just bow down and worship me, all this will be yours, Jesus, he said. And here in chapter 16, Peter is unwittingly trying to get Jesus to do the same thing, to pursue the kingdom without the cross, to seek the glory without the suffering. But again, praise God, Jesus stays true to his mission. He stays true to the Father's will and the Father's plan. He resolutely refuses Peter's temptation to deviate from God's plan. He rebukes Peter in about as strong as language as you can, showing once again how committed Jesus is to the Father's plan of Christ saving his people, how through suffering, through his death and resurrection. See, Jesus understood that the timing of everything. He understood that suffering came first and then glory, right? Suffering, rejection, death, but then resurrection, exaltation. And Hebrews says, For the glory set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. So Jesus strongly rebukes Peter for trying to interfere with, his, with Christ's mission. And look, Jesus warns Peter. He says, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of of man. Wow, does that statement hit home? <laughs> Is that not the battle that we face every day? Will we set our minds on the things of God or on the things of man? Are we going to seek first the kingdom of God or are we going to seek and pursue the things of this world, my, my personal kingdom? Will we walk by faith or will we walk by sight? Will we live with eternity in view? Or will we instead just indulge in the, the pleasures of sin for a season? This is the battle. Setting our minds on the things of God. Filling our minds with God's word. Being led by his spirit. Setting our minds on the things of God, not the things of man. That we're inundated with every day. 
And so what a turn of events this has been, right? I mean, you think back to last week. Peter gives this great confession. It's by God's grace. God's revealed to Peter and the others who Jesus is, right? Jesus makes that clear. But yeah, Peter gives this great confession, and Jesus says, Peter, you, you are, your name is Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And now here, just moments later, he's not calling him rock anymore, he's calling him Satan. What a rapid fall for Peter. One minute Peter's confessing that Jesus is the Christ, hearing he's the rock upon which Christ will build his church, and then immediately Peter fails big time, and Jesus rebukes him as being Satan's mouthpiece. And so this shows us, right, the disciples still have a lot to learn about the nature of Christ's mission. And that's what Jesus then is going to be focusing on in the coming chapters. And, and praise God, we see the, 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 the steadfast love. We see the patience of Jesus with his disciples as we need that too. And we see him continue to teach. This is not going to be the only time that he tells them what's going to happen to him. We're going to see it in the very next chapter, as a matter of fact where he's going to be telling them what's going to take place, preparing them for what would happen. Before we move on to the second part this morning, I want, I want us to just pause for a moment. And I pray that this morning these verses would remind us of the great cost that Jesus paid. Believer, let these verses that we just read and studied remind you of the great price Jesus paid for your salvation. Look again with me. It says, he will suffer many things and be killed. I just, I kind of meditated on that this week. Suffer many things and be killed. Jesus suffered many things for our salvation. Like leaving the glories of heaven to come to earth the very thing we're celebrating this time of year, right? That was hu- an act of humility. Humbling himself, as Gare read this morning, by taking on a human nature, by becoming a helpless babe. The eternal Son of God became a helpless babe, experiencing hunger, weakness, fatigue, Submitting to fallible parents, submitting to fallible teachers, obeying them, learning and obeying God's law, though he himself was the living word. That was suffering. Hebrews calls that suffering. He learned obedience through suffering. being slandered and slapped and falsely accused by the religious leaders, being spit upon, beaten, and mocked by the Roman soldiers, being scourged to the point of near death, forced to carry his cross as a public spectacle through town, crucified naked where he endured more mocking and had to painfully fight for every breath. He suffered many things. And then on the cross, bearing our sin, Jesus suffered as no one ever has. As God's wrath against our sin was poured out on him, and he was forsaken by his own father. Consider 
Consider the cost of our salvation. And you add to all of that. This passage just made me think. (laughs) In addition to all of that I've just said, think about how Jesus had to anticipate these things happening. I mean, at this point in Matthew's gospel, and I know before this, but clearly Jesus knows what's going to happen. He's telling his disciples, this must happen. He's preparing them for what's going to take place. And we know Jesus went to the cross willingly. But was not the anticipation of this suffering and death another kind of suffering that he had to endure? Every time Jesus prepares his disciples, would there not be just some sliver of dread or at least a heaviness of heart come upon Jesus? We see it in the garden, right? I mean, when he's right at, on the doorstep of it. We see him sweating drops of blood. So think of the anticipation of this. Every time Jesus, whether in the synagogue or in personal, you know, private devotion, every time Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 or many other texts from the Old Testament about the suffering and and death, and Jesus knew that was talking about him. Think of what went through his mind every time those were read. Or every time he witnessed an animal sacrifice. Every time the Passover was celebrated, that cup of God's wrath came into clear focus for him. And again, he was doing it willingly. But yet, what a heavy burden to bear. And, and I'm reminded of one more form of, of the cost, I guess you could call it. And that's just the temptations to avoid all of that, right? We see that come out. In the text today, temptations to avoid the suffering, Satan, the crowds, right? We see at different times the crowds saying, yeah, let's make him king. And now here Peter, his own dear disciple, Peter, tempting Jesus to avoid the suffering, tempting him to pursue comfort, to pursue glory without the suffering, to abandon God's plan. What a cost Jesus paid. Again, Jesus knew that God's plan for him was suffering first, then glory. Praise God, he was faithful. But just consider the cost today. Consider the cost that Jesus paid for your salvation and for mine. I was reminded of that song we sing. What a, what a love What a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. So I hope this text just stirs in your heart to thank your Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for paying that cost. Thank you that that cost is paid in full. And so that leads us to our second part here. In addition to grasping what kind of Messiah Jesus would be, the disciples need to realize that there's implications for them as well. Suffering and rejection for Jesus means rejection for any who would become his followers. And that's part two. 
the cost of following Christ. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any would come after me, if any would come after me, to come after Jesus is to become one of his disciples. Right? In their culture, they, they understood that. There were great teachers who were followed by their students, by their disciples. And the student would follow behind the teacher, seeking to learn from him in order to become like him. And so he's saying, if anyone would become one of my followers, if anyone would become one of my disciples, then here is the cost. And so as we go through this, please understand, Jesus is talking about what it means to be a Christian. Okay? Unfortunately, in, in Christendom, there's the wrong teaching about like, well, you can have Jesus as your Savior, and then maybe later, you know, you, you take him as your Lord. Or, or, you know, this idea of like becoming a Christian, and then, and then, you know, if you get really serious about it, and kind of the elite, the advanced version of Christianity is becoming a disciple of Jesus. No, no. It's all the same thing. Becoming a Christian is becoming a disciple. Becoming a Christian is following Christ. And here Jesus is, is calling people to do that. But he's saying, here's what it costs. If anyone would come after me, verse 24, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus lays out what is required in following him. What is necessary to become a Christian and then what it looks like to be a Christian. And when I say what it's necessary to become a Christian, please understand I'm not talking about earning salvation. We know we are saved by God's grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. We're not saved through any works of us. But Jesus is just explaining of what it looks like to follow him, to enter into his kingdom. What should mark the lifestyle of a follower of Christ? What should be the ongoing practice of someone who is following Christ? So we need to understand this. We need to heed the cost. We need to recognize what he calls us to. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Deny means to disown, to abandon and again, that's essential in becoming a Christian initially, isn't it? It, it this, it's the conviction that I have nothing in and of myself that commends me to God. I have no merits of my own by which I can appeal to God. I don't deserve his love. I don't deserve his salvation. And so, again, deny means abandon, disown. I abandon all self-righteousness. Jesus already taught this in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Poverty of spirit, spiritual bankruptcy. I abandon all self-righteousness. By God's grace, I recognize my poverty of spirit. I realize that I'm in debt to a holy God and there's nothing I can do to save myself. I understand that I'm completely dependent upon God's mercy to save me through Christ. I deny myself. And then as a Christian, I continue to have that mindset, right? That all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. It's not that, oh, well, God was pretty lucky to have me, right? Or, or now I can somehow, you know, do enough to stay in favor with him. No, I continue to, to deny any sufficiency in myself. 
I continue to depend on his grace. And thankful that he, his mercies are new every morning. Thankful that his grace abounds even where my sin increases. That I'm continuing to deny my own sufficiency. And here's an important one to understand. Becoming a follower of Christ, it's not only abandoning all self-righteousness, but it's denying, it's a denial of self, meaning I'm, I'm abandoning this notion that I am the captain of my life. You see that ingrained in human nature, don't you? I mean, some, and, and you know, you've heard the quotes, right? Some, some unbelievers, like, um, explicitly state that, you know, I'm the captain of my soul. I'm Lord of my life, however they say it, right? But no, becoming a Christian means you abandon that. It means, no, I recognize Jesus as king, and then I'm to live for him and not myself. He is the captain. He is Lord. He is my master. My life is now to be lived for him, and so, so this is important, isn't it? That being a Christian is not just trusting in Jesus so that you don't go to hell. It is that, but it is also living for him. It's also submitting to his lordship. Recognizing that Christ is, is king. That's what, <laughs> that's what it means, right? That's what Christ means. He is king. I submit my will to his. I'm to seek his kingdom, not my own. I'm to live for his glory, not my own. And so now Jesus governs the direction of my life. Now I reorient my life around his kingdom and under his word. And so Jesus is Lord of every area of my life. And again, this is a... This is a a conviction, a decision we make, a commitment we make, and then it's a process, right? Obviously, it's a lifelong process of conforming to his word. But it means that he is now Lord of of all my pursuits. It means Jesus is Lord of all my relationships. He's Lord of of how I want to express my sexuality, of how I I choose to talk to people. he's, He's Lord of even what I'm supposed to think. And I'm to, I'm to conform my, my mind. I'm to be taking in the word of God, renewing my mind. And not being conformed to the ways of this world, but rather being conformed to the, to the life Christ is calling me to live, to his own life. So that's denying himself. Next he says, take up his cross. Now what... Think, think to the original hearers. What would they have thought of when Jesus says, take up his cross? What image would have came to their mind? Right? The, the Roman death march. Right? I mean, they, they were occupied by Romans. And unfortunately, they had witnessed crucifixions before. They knew that the Romans would lead the condemned criminal through the city, carrying his cross beam to his place of execution. And so that's the image that would have came to their mind when Jesus says, let him deny himself. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so we need to understand, what is he saying here? Well, he's not talking about, oh, well, 
the, the challenges we face in life, right? He's not saying, oh, that's just the, the burden I have to bear. That's just the cross I have to bear. No, that's cliche. That, that's not what he's talking about. Jesus is saying, to follow me, you need to be willing to give it all up. You need to be willing, even if God would call you to, you need to be willing to die. You need to be willing to walk the very path of rejection and execution that I'm going to walk if you follow me. You have to be willing to participate in my suffering, in my death. And again, we know his death was unique. His death was the one that was paying for sins. But he's just saying, right? I mean, he's already alluded to this, right? Matthew 10. A student's not above his teacher. If the world hates you, it's going to... If the world hated me, it's going to hate you, right? I'm sending you out as, as sheep among wolves. And think about who he was talking to. Those disciples, those original disciples, most of them would, in fact, face martyrdom. And we know many do still today. Praise God, he doesn't call all of us to that, but we need to be willing to follow him Wherever he leads, whatever path he has us go down. And that's, again, reiterated in that last statement. And follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This command entails a strong personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow me. Who are we following? We're following Christ. We're not continuing to go our, the way we were before, right? And, oh, great, now I have Jesus on my side and... I know I can go to heaven. No, we're, it was a change of direction. I used to be following the course of this world, but now I'm following Christ. So I'm going to no longer follow the world. I'm no, going to no longer follow the, the passions of, of, my, uh, of my sinful flesh. I'm going to no longer follow the, the crowd and what this, the philosophy of this world says. I'm going to follow Christ and what his word says. Again, disciples followed the rabbis in order to become like them. So we follow Jesus that we might learn from him and become increasingly conformed to his image. And as we follow him and, and, and abide in him daily and as we read his word, God's spirit does change us and we little by little become increasingly like Christ. And his priorities become increasingly our priorities. And his spirit increasingly produces fruit in us like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Being a disciple, again, means I'm willing to follow Christ wherever he may lead me. I'm willing to follow him down a path of suffering. I'm willing to follow him down a path of rejection. I'm willing to follow him during times of prosperity or times of poverty I'm willing to follow him with in times of joy and in times of pain. I'm following Christ. And so this is what it looks like to, follow, to become a Christian, to be a Christian. To deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Luke's account says to daily do that. And again, as... I'm reminded how much we need God's grace to do this, don't we? 
again, by God's grace, he calls, we make that commitment, we recognize he's Lord, we say earnestly and, and from our heart, yes, I want to follow you, but we know our hearts are prone to wander, and so daily we have to come back and depend on his grace and say, Lord, bind my wandering heart to thee, I want to follow you, help me deny myself, and he's faithful to give us that grace. So this is the cost. I've heard it said that salvation is free, but it will cost you everything, right? And that's true. And so Jesus calls us. I mean, that's what he's doing here. He does it many places. He's saying, consider the cost. He lays it all out. No, no bait and switch from Jesus, right? Here's what it looks like to follow me. And he's saying, are you willing to pay that cost? And so I ask each one of us that. Are you willing to follow Jesus no matter what it costs? Are you willing to give up everything to follow Jesus? Are you willing, if the Lord would call you to, are you willing to, and some of you have already had to pay these prices, but are you willing to, to, to lose friends to follow Jesus? Are you willing to lose a, a job to follow Jesus, to be true to Jesus? Are you willing to be rejected by family members to follow Jesus? If the time would would come in our country or if the Lord leads you somewhere else and you have to pay the ultimate price to follow Jesus of your very life, are you willing to do that? By God's grace, we will. By God's grace, many do. So he's laid out the cost, but really he gives, I mean, I guess you could look at it as warnings, but I, I think you can also look at them as encouragements to, to pay this cost. Verse 25, I'll move through these kind of quickly. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For whoever would save his life, in other words, whoever would try to Remember what we said? Maintain control of his life. Say, no, I'm not willing to give that up. I I, want to be captain. Whoever does that and says, I don't want to submit to Christ, I want to call my own shots, that person's going to lose his soul in the end. But Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, whoever gives gives up everything, whoever gives over that control, whoever loses his life completely and gives it to me, whoever relinquishes control, gives up living for himself, that person's going to truly find life. In this life and the life to come, that person is going to know what true life is. And I, I enjoyed thinking about that this week. Whoever would save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Did you know that when you become a Christian, you find out what life truly is? In other words, you experience the life that you were truly made for. Still under the, still battling sin, I understand that, right? But you you get to experience reconciliation with your creator. You get to experience knowing God, knowing Christ, loving Christ, worshiping Christ, following Christ, what you were made for. 
You get to find what life truly is. So many people who don't know Christ are out there, and they may be enjoying the pleasure of this, pleasures of this world, but they haven't found what life really is. And, and some of them even recognize that, right? Because they're always grasping, they're always searching. But when you come to Christ, you find out what life is all about. And then, of course, even greater news than that, I guess you'd say, or is you get to you find eternal life, and you'll be with Him forever in glory. And so, it's really an ironic statement, isn't it? If we attempt to save our life, we lose it. But if we lose our life by giving it to Christ, we truly find it, both here and forever with Jesus in the life to come. And so Jesus further elaborates that in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Right? I mean, he's getting really pragmatic here, kind of like a, laying out a business proposition to you. Saying, what, imagine if you could gain everything that the world has to offer. All the wealth, all the fame, all the pleasure, all the praise of this world. If you could, just for the sake of argument, if you could have that, would, what would that profit you if you lost your soul? Would that be a, a, a good trade-off? If you could have everything the world has to offer, and yet in the end you lose your eternal soul. Clearly, Jesus is wanting us to see No. That would be a bad trade, right? You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Give me eternity with Jesus. It's not worth it to gain the whole world and lose my soul for eternity. We can do without the things of this world. Again, most most of those things aren't even good anyways. They, They distract us from the Lord. We cannot do without our soul. My soul lives forever. If my soul ends up in hell for eternity, then it doesn't matter how nice I lived up here. It was a bad deal. And that's the point he's making. And, and so many, sadly, so many people do just that, don't they? They live, they live their whole life pursuing the things of this world, pursuing the pleasures of this world, and in the end, they exchange that for an eternity of separation from God in a place of torment. And so Jesus is is warning us, don't do that. Don't, Don't trade in temporary pleasures for an eternity of separation from God. Verse 27 For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And so he's he's explaining, choose Christ. Because, remember, Christ suffered and then was exalted. He's in a place of glory now. He's Lord. He's judge. He's coming again. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. 
The risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. Jesus will return in glory with his angels, and when he does, he's going to bring judgment to those who rejected him. He's going to bring judgment to those who said, no, I'm not going to give you my life. I want to be captain of my life. When Jesus returns, those people will be judged and they'll be separated from him forever. They'll be thrown into a lake of fire and face everlasting punishment. But when Jesus returns in glory, those who followed him, those who gave up all to follow him, those who suffered because that's where he led them, that's the path he led them down, they will be welcomed into his presence. And they'll hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And they'll be rewarded with the crown of life and and rewards in heaven for what they have done, for how they've lived, for how they've faithfully followed Christ. And so, in all of this, Jesus is saying, consider the cost. But he's also saying, it's worth it, right? It's worth the cost. It's worth whatever price you have to pay to spend eternity in glory. It's worth whatever price it costs you now to, know, to have the peace of God and know that you'll spend eternity with Jesus in his kingdom. It's worth it. To, even if you face rejection, even if you hear people reject you and say all kinds of, of, of slander toward you, it's worth it for in the end you'll hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's worth it. And so that's what I pray we come away with today. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are many standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Following Jesus may mean rejection now, but that will not be the last word. Yes, you know, again, putting ourselves in Matthew 16, Jesus would suffer and die, but he would be raised. He would come again in power and great glory. And in the very next chapter, he's about to let some of the disciples see a glimpse of that, to kind of see a foretaste of that in the transfiguration. He's going to let Peter, James, and John experience just just a taste of what that final completed kingdom will look like as they see Jesus transfigured on the mountain. So yes, Jesus is headed down a path of, of rejection and suffering and death, but it's going to lead to glory. And likewise, those who would follow him must be willing to follow that same path that involves suffering and and rejection maybe even death because of Christ, but it's going to lead to glory too. And so it's worth it. And so here in Matthew 16, we've seen Jesus explain to his disciples, and in doing so, really he's issued a call to anyone who is not already to follow him. The call has gone out. If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He's laid out the requirements of what it looks like to be a disciple. And so today, if you hear the Lord calling, do not harden your heart. The call still goes out. Jesus still issues this call as the gospel is preached. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Yes, the cost to follow Christ is great, but as many here can testify, it is more than worth it. 
and our, we can't even fathom the glory and the joy that awaits us. And so whatever cost we, we're called to pay, it's going to be worth it to follow Christ. And you can flip that around the other way too. The cost of not following Christ is a terrible price. The cost of not following Christ, of not submitting to him, is a terrible price that you'll have to pay for all eternity. And so may God give us all grace to to heed the call and to follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And again, we praise you and thank you that for the great cost that Jesus paid. And again, I know you detail a lot of that in your word, and and yet we confess that we still can't fathom the totality, the the enormity of the price that he paid. We can't fathom what it was like for him to go through the incarnation. We can't fathom what it was like for him to... um, bear our sin and, and your wrath against our sin. But yet we praise you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying that price. Thank you, Lord Jesus. What love, how deep and is your love. And we rejoice in it today and we rejoice at what you have accomplished. We praise you that you stay true to your your calling, we stick, that you stay true to the Father's plan, that you paid that price in full, even though others were trying to get you to deviate, even though others were trying to get you to take the easy way out, we praise you that you remain true and you, you paid that price and that you're in glory now, never to suffer again. And so thank you for paying that, thank you for calling us to be your disciples. May you give us grace to follow you faithfully. May you give us, you know how easily distracted we are. You know how the world, um, how we battle the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask for your help. Help us to walk in the Spirit and to follow you faithfully. And may you open the eyes of any here today who have not submitted to you. Father, may you show them where a life of rejecting Christ leads to. May you show them that the the price they will pay for all eternity of not following you. And may you, by your loving grace, draw them to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and close with another song of praise.